HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green. We'll look back at 2020, the year in wine. We'll taste three wines during the show for our weekly wine sip that Josh graciously provided. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green has been the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine since 1986. In addition to writing feature stories and commentaries for each issue, Josh and staff taste thousands of wines annually. Josh is also the critic for the wines of the Napa Valley, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Rioja, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Wine and Spirits magazine annually features the best new sommeliers, the restaurant poll, top 100 tasting and symposium, and extensive wine reviews. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Josh. Hey, Sam. Great to be here. Josh, this is your fourth year in a row. You're, you know, the only guest that's been on four years. That's fantastic. When I first met you, I had just started the show in September, four years ago, and you were gracious enough to come that 
December with not much of a track record. So four years later, I thank you for coming on every year. Um, Josh, where are you? Uh, where are you right now? I am basically in sort of a permanent quarantine in Massachusetts in the Berkshire Hills. My nice house place is, to be. My house is in a hill town above Lenox. And so I'm separated from Lenox by the Appalachian Trail and a major, uh, the biggest state park in Massachusetts. Wow. So, Sounds like a good place to be. Uh, spring, winter, cold, fall, or summer. Cold and snowy right now, but well, generally yeah. a good place to be. Yeah, Believe it or not, it's, it's, it's flurrying here. Um, we are talking to Josh remotely uh, via Zencaster. Um, all right, so let's get right into it. Josh, this has been anything but a normal year. I think we'll Whew. all agree to that. Yeah. So I want to get your take on some major wine stories this year. Um, and, you know, you may have, you know, a few stories you may want to talk about, too. But the first thing, you know, to me was the most powerful and the most obvious, and that was COVID-19. So the opening question, and you can take it wherever you want, is, you know, tell me the effects the COVID-19 virus, you know, had on the wine and hospitality industry. Well, major effects, but I guess... I, I sort of see it as COVID-19 and the fires as one thing. Um, I think they both are tied to how we're manipulating the climate as humans. Okay. And um, the COVID-19 epidemic is basically the planet sort of battling back at us. Um, the fires are the planet battling back at us too. And so both are both of these situations have been completely devastating for the restaurant industry, for the wine industry, for, you know, I mean, the COVID-19 epidemic has been de completely devastating for this country. It's horrifying what's going on. Right. Um, but in terms of our industry, the wine, the wine industry, it's really um, changed the dynamic in ways that none of us can fully understand yet. I think that um, certain aspects of the wine industry are booming, like um, online wine sales for retail. The first half of wine.com's um, overall growth showed, you know, the first half of the year for wine.com showed overall growth of 200% over wow. the last year. So from April to October, I think it was 217%, while all these restaurants are going out of business. And, you know, major, like, long-term Michelin-starred restaurants just saying, we can't handle this. There's been a whiplash of you can be open, you have to be closed, you can be serving outside, you can be serving inside, you can't be serving inside. Right. And these things are decided on a day-to-day -day basis, and restaurants can't function that way. Most sommeliers have been, if they were not a GM at a restaurant, they're not working. Um, or they're working in a, in a different way, in a different part of the industry. Um, some have gone into the um, retail side of the industry. Some have gone into the production side of the industry. Some have been able to survive by changing their work to, you know, do to-go stuff. I think it was March 17th when New York State allowed restaurants and bars to do wine sales to-go as long as it went with a food order. Right. Um, and that was a complete change for the state. Um, so licenses have changed in certain places to try to accommodate this 
crazy chaos that's going on, but it's not enough. And um, but I have a question, Josh. Yeah. So you take a online uh, company um, that went up, you know, over two hundred percent, and then you have restaurants going through every scenario. You said opening, closing, you know, having to sell food with wine, indoor, outdoor. Um, on consumption, <clears throat> were was consumption generally up, down? Did it did it equal out? Obviously, down in restaurants. Obviously, people buying it, you know, online at home. You know, how did that affect you I've know, seen, the industry? I've seen different stats, but my general impression is that people have been drinking a lot since they've been sitting at home. So, okay. <laughs> but that's making, making up for what they're drinking yeah, at restaurants. That's, I that's hope? my anecdotal. That's my anecdotal observation. Um, right. But I, you know, I, I can't quote you a stat on what sales have actually been, and I don't yeah. know that we'll have a really clear idea of that immediately anyway. Especially um, with all the changes in the restaurants still. Yeah. So it's, um, I think that the, the kind of consumption is what people are looking at more, and that is that the kinds of wines selling are inexpensive wines, a lot of branded wines that people knew about before, there isn't the kind of curated advice, um, you know, that comes with a wine list or with a sommelier helping you out. Right. So people might be reluctant to buy wines that they don't know. And the restaurant model for many years, especially since the last economic crisis, was based on sommeliers finding well-priced wines that they were, that were really good quality and really interesting to taste and selling them to their customers at a good price and still making money on them because nobody knew what they were. Right. Um, now, what about, what about retail? I mean, do you think retail, because people were hesitant to go out or make contact, I don't think they retail, took the same hit retail as has restaurants. Not taken, retail has not taken the same hit, especially big box retail, especially the, the big, you know, that, that's selling online, um, especially the big retailers who do have online presence. Um, and other retailers who have been able to do, you know, a lot of retailers have really taken it on themselves to provide service to, you know, I was talking to Tara Thomas, who's one of our, who's an editor at the magazine. And um, she was tasting with Christy Frank for their last issue. And Christy had, um, frankly, wines in New York that she right. is no longer con connected to completely. And she, but she has a, a shop in, in um, upstate New York. And she was hand delivering some some wines to an, a person who ordered them in Brooklyn when she was coming to pick up wines from Tara. So um, people are doing all sorts of of like direct service for their customers to try to sustain these relationships. Right. And it's hard, I think, right now for small retailers. Um, I think it's I think the really devastating aspect of the pandemic is that all small business, not all. Many small businesses are suffering really hard knocks right now. And big business is actually thriving, especially tech. So right. it's, um, you know, it's, it's a challenging time for small business, whether you're a restaurant or a retailer. It's less challenging if you're a retailer because you have ways your license right. and, your, and your customer base allows you to survive a little more effectively. 
But a lot I of thought, restaurants are turning to retail. So I was just going to say, I thought it was interesting in New York where a lot of the restaurants literally pulled their cellar up from downstairs yep. and created retail space and became, you know, wine shops. And the cool thing about that was there is an incredible list of curated wines at some of these places. No question. Cool. And they're all trying to figure out how to, how to market them and what to sell them for because right. they're no longer selling them in the environment of their restaurant. How do you price it in that context? What right. should be the pricing? It's, that's a really complicated question because it affects... Yeah. We're doing an article and we're doing some research right now for our next issue on that very question because it affects what happens after the pandemic, how consumers, how, how your customers look to you and, and the pricing on your list. It's going to be very different because so their experience has been different. Do you think people will remember that they bought the wine retail from a restaurant um, and they realized it's less than sitting down and buying the bottle and then, God willing, the restaurant reopens, you know, less than a year from now and they're like, hey, I'm not paying that? I think more than most anything else, people remember what they spend on things. Right. <laughs> That's the reality. So you, yeah. you answered the question. Um, you know, when you talk about businesses, I think we're going to see a lot of businesses go out, a lot of restaurants. They but already have. Many let's already talk have. A, yeah, let's talk about, you know, your publication. I mean, mm -hmm. God bless. It's been around many years. We're still here. Yep. But the way you function is, you know, you've expanded into live events. You you know, made a name by creating these features, best new sommelier restaurant poll. Wasn't most of that ceased this year? So we, we had been doing live events. This year we did a virtual event. Um, and that was a huge amount of work for our staff. I think it came off well, but right. it was really challenging to, to convert, to try to find a way to convert our top 100 events that we'd done last year with, you know, wines and people and, and a place and interaction to a screen, really tough. Right. Um, so we spent six months working on that, and I'm actually really relieved that it's over. Um, we will do more virtual events, but they are—they won't be like that one because we learned a huge amount just putting that all together. Right. And um, in terms of our niche. It's very challenging to figure out, you, we can't do a Best New Somme poll next year because there won't be Best New Sommeliers. And right. um, doing a restaurant poll where we've been talking for the last three months about what we do to conduct a restaurant poll this year when so many people are closed. We've already done some mailings to figure out who is closed, who is, who is actually working, um, who we can question about their sales, if they've had any sales. Um, it's a, it's a complicated problem. So we don't know. That's been one of the signature features that we publish every yeah. year. And we're really struggling to find ways of making it relevant to the current environment. Right. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, s s some major, you know, important things to the publication, mm -hmm. you know, just couldn't happen. Now, it's no secret that you do, you know, special events and you can monetize them. You know, you do a big tasting with the top 100 um, but we can't, can't monetize this year. Yeah, I was, we can't but monetize you can't, it this year. You can't capture anywhere near that revenue virtually either, right? Um, a little? I don't think we made any money on, and, and it's also a charity event that we do. Right. So it's not, I mean, we, you know, we charge, 
we, we charge for our time to put it together. We don't donate all of our time putting it together right. because it's the whole staff is working on it full time for a while. Right. But in general, it's a charity event. And, um, and so we give money to, this year we're giving, we're giving money to a restaurant foundation and we're giving money to Baykeeper in, in San Francisco and New York, which, is, which are the two charities we normally give money to from our live event. Um, so the question it, is, it, I mean, it isn't, you get... it isn't as financially rewarding for them or for us. Um, right. And, you know, and it's expensive actually to put on a live event um, for a, a, a virtual event in a, in a, on a live broadcast. It costs, us a, it costs us much more money than we'd expected it to. So right. um, it was interesting. You know, that's why I say we, we learned a lot. We could have done it on Zoom and done it really sort of um, bootstrapping it. But we didn't want to do. We we had a lot of very important winemakers involved. We wanted them to feel good about being involved. Right. You so, had very specific yeah. sessions, you know, dedicated, yeah. um, you, you know, which really did highlight them. It was more than a Zoom session. Oh yeah. Um, I want to continue on through the year, um, moving off of the pandemic, which you know we could do a whole show. I want to mm-hmm. talk about the California fires, you know, expand a little more on that. Sure. Before we do that, um, we've always tasted interesting wines on the air and let's delve into one. Um, you picked three wines. The first one is a very interesting wine. It is Rose and Arrow Estate in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, tell me a little about the wine and the winery. So this is a really interesting project that Mark Tarlov put together originally with Louis-Michel Ligier Belair. He's no longer involved as of about a year and a half ago. Belair is um, not involved? No. Ligier Belair, Belair? Okay. Belair was a partner, but he's no longer involved now. Now, who's um, Mark Tarlov? Mark Tarlov is a, um, he's a lawyer. He was a movie producer. Right. And then he became a wine producer. Um, first with Evening Lands, which he founded in, I think it was 2005 or so. And then right. he founded, um, he left Evening Lands, Larry Stone left at the same time. And Larry Stone founded Lingua Franca and Mark founded um, Chapter 24. And then um, Mark brought on Ligier Belair to do that. And they were partners in the project. And he also brought on, Ligier Belair was friendly with um, Pedro Parra, who is this brilliant right. geologist, um, basically a wine geologist who's studying all of the basalt in um, these vineyards in Oregon. And so it's a really cutting edge project. Um, Felipe Ramirez is another friend of Ligier Belair and, and Pedro Parra, and he's making the wines. Um, so we did a actually a session with this wine and um, a wine by Jason Drew, which is also like a discovery of a new terroir. Um, this is from a vineyard in Hopewell Hills. Um, they call it the Hopewell Hills Vineyard, but it's actually got a different name. They just don't use that name because it's used by other people. Um, and they call this wine Gathered Stones. And it is a specific edge of the lava flow in this vineyard that's very rocky and um, where the soils have deteriorated to a point that they are accessible to the vines. And so they harvest this wine by marking off the vines along this ribbon of the, lava, of the edge of the lava. So it's not a block. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a ribbon of, of vines. Right. And um, by selecting this out, they create this amazingly complex 
very beautiful wine that um, I sort of knocks me out. It just, I, I think this is gorgeous wine. So let's, let's taste it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Color wise, it's, you know, it's a pretty deep, dark Pinot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, know, it's, it's, it's a it's very good. deep, dark Pinot. Yeah. For Pinots, it's mm-hmm. none of that, you know, reddish, you know, Dr. Peppery stuff. So that's the color. Um, on the nose, it's a very enticing nose. What do you get on the nose? Well, for me, this wine is very mineral, and right. it's it smells like stones and spice. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. it's not particularly fruity. Um, so it's really about the rock at the vineyard. And everyone says, you know, oh, well, you can't really smell rocks. But you can smell rocks, actually. If you knock two rocks together, it smells like flint. You know, I mean, when it rains on a hot rock, you smell that. Exactly. And so, um, you know, people have sort of questioned me about using that terminology, but I don't think it takes any leap of faith to really think about smelling rocks. You know, if you walk up to a rock and you smell it, sure, there's not going to be any smell. But if there's some sort of dynamic happening, in, in the case of this wine, there's a dynamic happening underground. And the particular soil here, um, they call it vesicular bas- basalt because it has all these little holes in it, all these little pockets that hold water. And the vine can more easily access the minerals through those pockets and through attaching itself, its roots to these little chunks of vesicular basalt. So um, it, it picks up certain nutrients and it develops, you know, may, nobody's really clear why it would end up having a rocky sensation, giving you a rocky sensation, but to me it does. Yeah, and whether the, you know whether finishes, I know it, yeah, the, whether the I know what that wine is or not, rocks. it does. Yeah, it yeah. really does. Um, all right. So on the palate, just you know, throw it over the uh, tongue. Tell me what you get on the palate. You for get me, more it's, of... for me, it's the power of that of that tannic spice. I mean, right now this wine is super young, mm-hmm. and this wine is more about tannin than fruit for me right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, for a young wine, the tannins are very present, but, you mm-hmm. know, it's drinkable now. Oh, there's no question. But I've had this wine open on my counter for four or five days at a time. And it's killer and five days later. It will blow you away. It will. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is the Rose and Arrow Estate um, Gathered Stones from Hopewell Hills, from uh, Pinot Noir, 2017 is the one that I'm tasting. Yes. Only 244 cases. Um, and if you look for the 2018, what's, what's really significant about this particular producer is that regardless of what the vintage quality is in any particular year, since they started making Rose Narrow wines, I think that 2015 may have been the first year, it may have been 16, I think it was 15, um, each year has progressively gotten more astonishing. Really? So they're they're learning so That's much where about you go. yeah they're learning so much about their sites and what to harvest and when that it is um, they are they are really getting it nailed. And so if you get right, the seventeen, so it's beautiful. If you get the eighteen, it's more beautiful. That's a good winemaker. So a couple things. Not the cheapest wine and not the most available wine. So the best nope. place would be to go probably on their website and yes. get on their mailing list. Yes. Um, Rows and Arrows. And retail-wise, what are we looking? Ballpark. I think this is um, 150 
I think right. the, no, the 97 was 120. The, 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 the 17 was 120. The 18 is, is 150. So let's preface that by these are very, you know, small production, you know. Oh, yeah. The, it's a rare the, wine. A yeah. rare wine. And, you know, these are the handful of wines that are in that price range, you know. And they are, make less expensive wines. They make right. less expensive wines. They consider this like their premier cru wine. Right. So that's they make why village go on wines. the yeah. That's why go on the website and you can get a whole array. All right. So that that's a beauty, Josh. That's a treat to me because I heard of it, but I never tasted it. So that's a really uh, wonderful wine. Thank you. All right. So let's continue with the year. I want to get a little more into natural phenomenon, starting with you know California. They probably suffered their worst fires with over four million acres torched just this past year. Yeah. Um, you know, what it was f- it was the worst fire year in, in recorded history. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and hardly, you know, the first, second or third. You know, what effect will the fires have on California and beyond? I mean, you know, how does that story play out? It's really not clear yet. And we did a big story on 2017 Cabernet um, because of this, because the fires have been so discouraging for people in the industry. Um you know, and seeing seeing the pictures of Meadowood burning still Oof. gives me the chills. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here with I'm sitting here with like a, a rush of chills going on. You yeah. know, if, if you if you can have a rush of chills, that's what's happening with me right now. Thinking about that photograph, it's mm. terrifying. And this is not the last we will see of these fires. These are just really you know when when the 17 fires hit, everyone was hopeful that that would not be a recurring phenomenon. So now we've had three out of the last four vintages as fire vintages, and with 2020 being the absolute worst. And we had two major fire events, one in August, that will, the one in August was far enough away from the main wine growing regions that there's a lot of discussion about old smoke and new smoke now. Um, it used to be that people were worried about smoke, period. Now they're parsing it with old smoke and new smoke and saying that old smoke, <laughs> if it's haze and it's from far away, does not have the same volatile phenols in it that can, that can get into the skins of the grapes and affect the quality of the wine, um, give you that kind of ashtray or barbecue flavor that comes right, out. Right, and that, yeah. wouldn't that be like resin from like buildings burning down, wood, construction no, it can be, it can be No, it can be resin from fires burning in, in, in the forests. Um, right. It's just it's it's volatile phenols, um, which right. are you know wood products, or it's the same. It's a lot of the same stuff that's in the oak barrels that people use to age their wine, um, right. but it's a different quality and, and character and volume of it. Um, and so the the August fires were devastating, but far enough away from wine country that they were not as devastating to wine country as the October fires, the glass fire. Um, I guess it was um, to that. It was in September, the end of September through October. So that second round came September twenty seventh, ended around October twentieth, which is the main harvest period for a lot of people. And um, they were already dealing with COVID. They were already dealing with the first fire, and the second fire came along. So the LNU complex ran from August seventeenth to October second. The glass fire ran from 27th of September to October 20th. So people were pretty well taken out. You know, a lot of people will not make as much wine or any wine 
in 20 like they usually do. You know, some people will not make any wine. Some people I, will not make as much wine. I am on the Schaefer mailing list, and mm-hmm. I got a note that they're not making wine in 2020. Yep. I, I didn't look close enough, you know, if it's just the Hillside Select or the cabs or everything or something, but the fact that they're pulling some of it back is, you know, a major setback for them. Yeah, and this could be my weakness as a journalist, but I have tried not to delve into this too deeply yet because I think it's too soon to tell. And I think that it's, it's almost like, for me, if I publish something about it, it's almost like gossiping. Um, and there's so much on social media about it that it's sort of covered by that. So right. I, we, we decided to look at the 17s, which are relevant right now in the market, and which had gotten sort of a suspicion developing around them because of the fires. And when we tasted them, they blew us away. So many of the wines are absolutely beautiful. So and very little presence of any kind of smoke or taint. Well, some do, some. but the good ones, you know, and not only the ones that were harvested before, we tasted one of, one of my favorite, uh, you know, th- it's really weird for me to say because I've been following Diamond Creek wines for years, for decades. And one of my favorite Diamond Creek wines on release, certainly one of my favorite Volcanic Hill wines on release, is right. the 2017. It is one of the sexiest Cabernets from California I've ever tasted. And it, really? may, be, it may be due to some effect of the smoke. Like a, but a, a, a it's nice like, little nuance to it. But it's, well, it's like they worked so hard. They, they harvested it after the fires. Um, the, the last grapes came in, I think, on November 2nd. Um, Phil Steinschreiber, who has been the winemaker there since 91, right. he, he washed the grapes off. He dried them in a colander. He cut the cold soak back to one day from four or five normally. Wow. Um, and he made a beautiful wine. He made several beautiful wines. And great, they really great. surprised me because I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm obviously going to like the wines from before the fires, but nobody's admitting that they made wines after the fires, except I, when I spoke to Phil, he was very readily open to say, talk, to talking about it, right. which was surprising to, to me. And turned yeah. out to be a great wine. And kudos to you, I mean, for not making really any judgments or covering, you know, the effects of the... Uh, 2020 fires it's just well, too we've, early we've, to we've covered we've covered the fires the, we haven't the covered fires yeah i'm ta- yeah. i meant the wine yeah you know it's you'll get to that when the time comes and that's yeah. when you'll be able you know to cre- create that um no doubt that the fires are part of climate change no question i mean it's um i think that the the fire itself is not caused by climate change but the conditions right that have you know we had a the conditions and the extremity of the conditions is a is influenced by climate change so i don't think it, i don't think you can make an argument about that i think that the extremity of the of the drought at the beginning of of 2020 and then well actually this is 2017 that i'm thinking of that you had you had a drought at the beginning um january february driest on record and then plenty of rain in the season. So you got all this, you got all this dry time and then you got all this heat. And the heat just drove this, you know, the heat drove the possibility of the fires. Right. No, actually, I'm sorry, I'm back to 2020 was the driest January, February on record. It was 2020. And then there was the heat. And so in, in 17, you had the same kind of heat. You had heat in, um, 
basically right at the at the turn of the month from August to September, so right around Labor Day. And I think it was just the last few days of, of August were 110 and through January through September 3rd. So people that liked to pick early were rushing to pick. Kathy Corson recalled how she was rushing to pick. She made a beautiful 2017. Yes. Um, other people were rushing to pick in that year, but you couldn't really rush to pick in 2020 because you were just battling with all these things like COVID. You know, right. how are you going to put a, ta- a tasting team, to- a picking team together on on the spur of the moment? You can't. Right. So um, it was really a problem. A lot of people didn't pick just because they couldn't get pickers in. So the, know, I mean, the I assume anyway stayed on the vines. At I, I, I assume it was hard for people to get picker teams together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I heard that from people. So, yeah. um, but yeah, again, all yeah. of this is anecdotal and not factual. You know, I mean, I just, I'm hearing right. things, I'm reading things on well, social media, I which I don't trust. your anecdotes are probably better than most. Um, on climate change, you know, the fires are, you know, uh, some kind of result byproduct, you know, like you said. Um, but aren't there specific examples like take champagne isn't that an area that generally was somewhat cool and they harvested you know at the same time and now because of climate change it just seems to be getting warmer there and harvest is early what's interesting to me sam is that when i talk to people in champagne about climate change they say no this is not about climate change this is about our farming and on some okay. level that's true on another level when you look at one one thing we may, if we're still alive, if there's if there's still humans alive in in twenty two hundred or twenty three hundred, um, looking back at this period of time, there'll be a transition in Burgundy in Champagne um, that people went from that the business went from negociant to to growers to vigneron, and it, it happened first in Burgundy a warmer area to begin with. And then it happened in Champagne. And it happened in basically the 80s, in the 70s and 80s in Burgundy into the 90s. And it happened in Champagne in the 90s and the 2000s, where we started seeing so many new grower wines coming through. And that's happening because they have consistent fruit. They have consistent harvests. And they can afford to keep their fruit and market it. And so from my point of view, that is a signal of of climate change. Um, right. You know, and, and I think for for them, they want to they want to take charge of the agency of of being proper vigneron, proper growers that they say, well, you know, there are poor growers here who don't benefit from any of this. And that's true. Um, but if you look at the general phenomenon of people going from negos to um, to vigneron, a lot of that, I think, has, you know, the, this, this big movement, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they can, that they can afford to do it, that they're not, they're not struggling to get their fruit, their individual fruit ripe every year. Right. I, I mean, it sounds like a good thing to me. I mean, it, it creates... For now. Yeah, yeah. an option. Um, mm-hmm. you, you had said leading into that, you know, that it also has something to do with the farming is it the way they farm or is it changes they've made? I think that... You know, the earlier the, harvesting and all that? 
I think if you look at um, the way that Eliorier farms, if you look at the way that Roterer farms, if you look at if if you look at some of the biodynamic growers, the Lamontier Bernier, the way they farm. Um, if you look at the way people are working that are really devoted to their land and to um, to their vines as as sentient beings and not just production tools, um, they have changed their farming radically over the last 20 years. They have the, the conscious level of farming for the last 20 years has been increasing dramatically. And so many more people are accepting of this idea that plants are, you know, plants are a live living organism too and need to be treated with honor and, and respect and aren't just there to pump chemicals into and take fruit off of. Um, and then, they, then you wonder why you have a wine that tastes like nothing. Um, so there's a, there's a lot more effective farming going on, whether it's, you know, I mean, we were going to talk a little bit about regenerative agriculture, um, regenerative organic farming. Right. And um, that to me is a really super exciting development in, it's sort of like bringing biodynamics and organics and a lot of the kind of higher level of consciousness around farming together. So there's one winery now in the world that is ROC, sort of, you know, basically regenerative organic certified. And that's Tablas Creek. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we wrote about them in the December issue and this whole process that they went through to even find out about this phenomenon. Um, they were organic before. And what this does is it really looks at the entire farm. It looks at the people working in the farm. It looks at everything you're doing in the farm, all of your, all of your, all of the various kinds of life that are there, whether it's bees, whether it's sheep, whether it's cows, whatever it is that you're farming and bringing it all together. And it's a project that Rodale, um, Patagonia and Dr. Broner's started. Um, and they've the got another- soap guy, the down jacket guy and the magazine guy. Well, they're no longer a magazine. Um, I don't think anymore. It's, they, it's they a, health, have- a health, health, related company yeah a yeah. wellness they used, company they used to yeah they used to have um, more organic farming mag i think was their magazine right rodale you know rodale press i think it's right. i think it's separate i'm not exactly certain but i think that this is like an association that they started a nonprofit association that they started i'd have to look back at my notes on it um but it is it is affiliated with it's the same group that was publishing those those titles and they may still be involved with them I, i'm not certain um, but that, yeah, that is the same group and they're in Pennsylvania. Um, and so this is the first winery. They had to change a lot of their rules to get a winery, a little winery involved. And now other wineries like Radio Couture are looking at it, Cullen in Margaret Rivers looking at it. A lot of people who are doing very significant farming work are looking at this as a next step. It's very cool. It's, yeah, it's a... Uh... It's it's great movement towards the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we're going to be seeing and reading a lot more about it. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, 
Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Josh, before we try another wine, I wanted to delve into a subject that we could spend a lot of time on, but, you know, I really just want you to comment on it. Um, Because, you know, in a way, you know, you were, um, you know, affected by this. You know, Julia Moskin from The Times has been writing for years about sexual harassment in wine and in the quartermaster sommeliers and the reason you know i kind of pull you in is you do the best new sommeliers every year and one of the people that you selected um was you know made the list and very quickly after he was the subject of harassment you know by four people that came forward two on the record and two anonymously and then less based in fact based in fact on the fact that we put him on our cover they came forward because they were so pissed about I, it. I wanted you to say that. I didn't have to. I mean, he was a cover boy that, you know, turned out to be, you know, one of the prime sexual, you know, harassers in the business. Well, it's and not, that, you know, but it's not. Now, wait a second. It's not clear. I've never actually heard what the outcome of that was. True. The, I, was, I, I was got accused. ahead of myself and I didn't mean to. Go yeah, ahead. He was accused. Right. And um, and Julia Moskin also made him out to be a celebrity sommelier, which he was not. So he did not have the kind of power. I mean, he he was evidently not behaving himself, but I don't know that. According to these women, he was not behaving himself. But he it was a very at a very different level than what came out this year about the court of master sommeliers, who really are mentors to a lot of these people. Um, And you know, people could argue that that he was a mentor, and maybe he was to some of these women. but these people were seriously in power at the court of Master Sommiers, and they've been accused. And that was the article that came out this year around the same time. Right. Um, so yeah. this, is, this is definitely Julia Moskin's beat. And, um, and it's important that she's bringing it to light because, you know, what, what we heard, what, what really horrified me this year, even before this all came out and what came out with, um, with Julia Moskintardo was pretty damn horrifying. But earlier in the year, when Tahira Habibi came out with her video right. describing how when she was working to become a master sommelier and she had paid a lot of money to fly north to participate in a session with her mentors, she was required 
to call the the master sommelier's master. And this really um, was troubling to her as a black woman. And I can fully understand that, um, how like freaked out that would make me if I were black and had to call someone master. Um, Even if I had, I would not want to do it being myself who's not black, but I I don't have the history that the black people in this country, the African-American in this country have with that word. And, you know, so it's pretty astonishing. So, so the, the court responded to that by um, changing some of their guidelines. And then they got blasted by this particular um, horror over some of the very people at the very high levels of the court being accused of harassing their mentees and on all different levels. I mean, um, and from, from rape down to. Yeah. Down to harassing, you know, verbally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But Um, clearly there's a culture, not only in the court, but in this industry. Uh, You know, a lot of a lot of women that I spoke with after this came out said, yeah, that's what happens. Um, And as a guy, I'm not necessarily aware of it. But a lot of women in this industry are very acutely aware of it, no matter what part of the industry they're in. And it is a lily white male industry and it needs to change. I agree with that. Um, my last show had Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez who mm-hmm. spoke out against Anthony Kalin and Jane was one of the subjects of Julia's recent article. Yep. Um, it's an interesting to get a take on that. Um, the, uh, there's a new president at the court, a woman, Mia, uh, there's new board members, but it looks like a lot of the old same. So it remains to be seen. Well, the um, yeah, the board members were just elected, and it is a woman who Emily Wines, who's a, the Emily Wines, yep. right? Mia Vanderwart is um, there too. But evidently, they can't bring a lot of women onto the board yet because their bylaws state that they have to be a master sommelier for two years. So. Um, it's lim- that's a limiting factor unless they change their bylaws. Um, well, I, I think everything has to change. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get into a debate with you. And like I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time. But, you know, the, the problem may be their bylaws and everything they've abided by. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a potential to, you know, blow it up, you know, start somewhat from scratch. You know, the problem is our culture. I mean, clearly our culture is it's not just the wine culture. It's, you know, I mean, celebrity culture. It's um, society. It's every it's every yeah. part of our culture. This is this is a very you know, we we, ha- we do not yet have a woman president. It's shocking to people that um, we have a woman vice president to a lot of people. Right. Um, and we, or we will. And many people are not accepting that as a fact. Um, there. There is a, there are significant aspects of racism and, and sexism in our culture that are not going away readily and um, that are, you know, that are not just on the male side and they're not just on the white side. And it's a real challenge. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's one of the central challenges we face as a, as a, as a country. I, I, so, I agree. It's, you know, it's, it, it just, it's, it's efflorescent in the wine industry Um, but it's not just in the wine industry. It's all over. Culturally, we will revisit that 
um, when you come back next year to see mm -hmm. what has happened between now and then. Um, Probably not enough. <laughs> right. You know, but it's something encouraging. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's not even prognosticate now. Let's taste um, the second wine. I'm a little excited about this because I think it's substantially uh, less expensive than the last wine. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, I took a few sips before and it seems delicious. So I want you to, I think to... this wine is outrageously delicious. So, so this the... is, so this is Pinot Noir again, but this time right. it's from Moray Saint-Denis. It's Frederick Magnien, who is, M-A-G-N-I-E-N. Um, yep. Magnien. And so he has, he has a domaine called Domaine, um, Michel Magnien, which is his, I think it's his father's name, Michel. Um, I don't think it's his grandfather, I think it's his father. Um, and then he has his own wines that he makes. And he's doing really, really interesting stuff. Um, this is from a village parcel. And um, he himself is from Moray Saint-Denis. He makes some amazing Chambols as well. But his, his Moray Saint-Denis, he has a Rousseau, which is about $100 a bottle. This is about $65 a bottle. Right. His Rousseau is mind-blowing. Um, we tasted his Rousseau right after this wine, and this wine blew our panel away completely. And then everyone was kind of speechless when they got to the Rousseau. It just you know was like, what the hell? How could really? this be? Um, so what he's doing, in addition to really careful farming, um, he decided to just get rid of all of his new oak. And new oak is a big part of a lot of high-level burgundies um, and adds a lot of depth and richness to the wines. And, and he decided he didn't want any crutch to his wine. He wanted to show it completely naked. So he adapted some clay amphora to his aging regimen. So he ages this wine in older oak and clay amphora. And so he's found that the clay doesn't give him the kind of reductive character. He, he was getting a particular kind of reductive character that he couldn't exactly explain to me, but it was troubling him. And he said that when he put the wine into clay, which obviously has a different oxygen exchange than right. oak, um, he wasn't getting that reduction. And when I taste his wines, they just have this kind of explosive energy and joy to them that is... Um, it, this was one of the this is one of the most exciting wines I tasted this last year, and I you know, bought some of it, and I bought some I, of his other wines. I don't I don't buy a lot of wine because I get so much wine shipped to me right, for tasting. But you want to have this, so yeah, you I want to have this. Got, yeah. What is the? I don't. My French sucks, Josh. The, or what? Herbeau. Mm -hmm. That's the uh, parcel or the area. Yeah, that's the parcel. Okay. All right. So let's. So, so the it's color just here, it's this is just this is a village parcel just below a Premier Cru. Okay. So it's 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 above village and below Premier Cru? No, it's no, it's a village parcel. But it it's is just, a village. But it's okay. what I'm saying is that there's a Premier Cru um, parcel directly above it on the hill. Geographically. Got Geographically, it. yeah. Okay, so let's look at it color wise. You know, it's a deep uh, you know, garnet. Um, you know, it's not as uh dark as the uh, Pinot from Oregon, but it's mm -hmm. got, you know, a nice richness in color. Um, what do you, tell me what you get on the nose. It's, it's... I get this very dark, um, sort of heady fruit character. I get a lot of, a lot of rose. I get a lot of game and I get um, a really dark, deep cherry character. It's more earthy than fruit, 
Um, but I also find it just a really fascinating wine to smell. Like I love smelling this wine. The, the nose and the palate are great. I mean, there's mm-hmm. definitely some crossovers. Um, on the palate, what crosses over from the nose and what else do you get on the palate? I get that. I mean, it's really that fruit that um, that drives it. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I get a really, what interests me about both these two wines, the Pinot from Oregon and this wine, is the quality of their tannins. I think the way that these, these are, this is what I think of as rich tannin. Like this is the kind of richness I want to pay for. Um, right. I don't want richness that, that pushes at me. Um, I was just going to say for a younger wine, there's no pusher, you know, no. harshness. It doesn't have to soften out. I mean, these mm-hmm. are ready to drink and these will lie down pretty nicely. This will lie down um, beautifully. And it, and it basically, what I love about this wine is that when in the finish, when you sort of, you take a sip of it and you breathe, you taste all of the complexity in the tannin. You taste all of the earthiness. You taste the fruit ghosting through it. It's yep. it's really beautiful. Now, is it is production decent or it's a smaller production wine? It's a small production wine. I don't know how much he makes of it, but he doesn't make a lot. Okay. He makes more of so this than Rousseau, but I think. So you're going to have um, to look for this. This is the yeah. Frederic Magnon Moray Saint-Denis. So the uh, easiest place to find this is through the importer who has a retail shop in Berkeley. It's called North, North Berkeley Imports. One of the and, great, you know, yeah. guys in the country, not far from Kermit Litch either, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Berkeley is Berkeley is really blessed to have two of the greatest two of the greatest importer retailers in the country. And um, Alice Waters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but she's not she's not importing wine, but she's no, got. But she's she, in Berkeley. Yeah, she uses a lot of the wines from Kermit. Um, and, and they share kind of a sensibility, but North Berkeley is a different kind of thing. And North Berkeley's champagne list and their burgundy list is, and their Italian list pretty astonishing. So, So um, they, they, they're two really great stores. Go to North Berkeley imports, go to their, uh, website and, you know, spend a few minutes and they'll have this wine plus some other stuff. All right, Josh, we have about 10 minutes left. Um, I'm going to combine two questions into one. And I think they kind of cross over. So um, I wanted to ask you if there are, you know, other significant stories this past year, you know, that you would like to discuss. And then I'm always curious about, you know, with all the distractions, interruptions, you know, changes this year, you know, certain things tend to go unnoticed. Um, you know, winemakers, wine regions, you know, they just get covered up by the stories. Um so, you know, tell me about anything that got your attention this year. You know, the, these wines fall into that. And, yeah. you know, if there's I anything mean, there, else, there were a, and a is number, there a story the who we missed? Yeah, the 2017 Cabernets, which I've mentioned, these particular Pinots, um, the wine we're going to taste for your, um, your tasting Weekly segment wine sip. at the yep. end, they all caught my attention, but a lot of wines caught my attention. But what one of the things that... What's what's odd to me is that you know we've 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 been living through so much death this year, um, right. but even without COVID, we lost a lot of really high level, brilliant people in this industry, um, you know. And it started, you know, you can it started with George DeBuff in January, um, right. one of the great leaders in Beaujolais. Um, whether you whether you like his style of wine or not, he had a huge impact on that region. And a great Michael marketeer Broadbent, too. You know. What's that? 
he was a great marketing guy. You know, oh, he yeah. really got the well, not message. Only, yeah. Not only great marketing, and he was a great marketing guy, but you know, with, with, with Beaujolais Nouveau, absolutely. But, you know, but all the chefs in France loved him for that. And, you know, right. it, it brought people into their restaurants. Um, but he also, he also really had a major impact on the whole image of the Beaujolais region and, and bringing it, you know, there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff happening there now on an artisanal level. Um, whether that would have happened without Deboeuf there doing what he was doing is another question. I don't know if, you know, he brought a lot of attention to Beaujolais. Which and is, we would both agree it's a very, I hate to use the word hot, but it's a very hot region making some terrific wines. Right? No question. I, I mean, yeah. there's some of the natural wines that are coming out of Beaujolais are astonishing. The, the, um, the, the original four yeah. guys, you know, the La Pierre Foyards, those mm-hmm. guys. But then there was Michael Broadbent, the master right. of wine, who basically created the Christie's um, wine auction department, and right. um, and he passed away in March. There was Barry Sterling, who created one of the greatest, one of the only great sparkling wine companies in the United States, Iron Horse. Right. Um, Mila Handley, who really was one of the great pioneers of Anderson Valley. Tony Trollato, an amazing trade Business character, man. trade figure. Right. Um, who built an empire um, in wine. And then Taras Ochoda um, of Ochoda Barrels, he was only 49. He passed away this fall, um, which was really sad. Great winemaker, yeah. Um, Great winemaker from Australia. Um, And those had nothing to do with COVID as far as I know. Um, You know, and we've lost, you know, we're we're losing so many people every day to COVID. Um, But we, as I say, we've lost it. 2020 will be remembered for so many people being lost yeah uh, on top of the covid like you said yeah. um i'm curious about this um I, I always try to talk about social media um you know where it makes sense mm-hmm. and we, we kind of broached it a little but i, I want to tie it together okay um I, I mean do you think social media had an assist in keeping things going in this crazy pandemic year. I think part of that could be a yes, because, you know, social media and the Internet, you know, the Internet is way more evolved than social media. They're both maybe teenagers Mm -hmm. um, or social media is. Um, But do you do you think it played an important role? I mean, you went virtual on, you know, one of your events, La Paulet did, you know, mm-hmm. La Fête du Champagne. A lot of these restaurants, Josh, you know, really got their message out, you know, by way of social media. Sure. Um, a lot of, <laughs> I did my podcast and you were, you know, running, you know, the magazine, but a lot of wine people were sitting around and interviewing each other on mm-hmm. Instagram oh, in yeah. case you didn't notice. I mean, does social media get a kudu, kudo for, uh, you know, for playing an important role in uh, the pandemic during these tough times? That's a really interesting question. I would... I would say that without without the internet, we would have had a very different pandemic. Um, the world would Industry have basically wise. come to a stop, um, or we don't really know what would have happened. But it we would not have been able to continue on as an economy without the internet. Um, you know, or we would have had a lot more death. Um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the internet has been a hugely powerful tool for maintaining social distance. Um, you know, it's it's sort of right. miraculous and horrifying at the same time. But it is, you know, I mean, the, the oligarchs of the internet have become so powerful, especially this last year. Now, if you want to ask me about social media, um, I really I think that social media is out of control. So um, I think that a lot of our a lot of our country's problems are tied to the irresponsible use of social media. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's not social media's fault, but it is social media's fault for not controlling its content. And as a, as a media company, I don't agree with the idea that social media needs to be free of responsibility. Um, any print, any, any, any broadcast, any traditional media is responsible for the content it delivers. And from my point of view, the social media content delivery is irresponsible and affecting us in really, really positive and really, really deeply negative ways. So I'm really the wrong person to ask to give, a, to give kudos to social media companies because I think they've been remarkably abusive over the last year and over the last four years. So that is a fair perspective. That's an accurate perspective. And it's a very timely perspective on the news today. You know, they're talking about not the content part, but breaking up uh, Facebook and Instagram and all of that. But those companies, I mean, the and there's a, you know, the there's a lot of a lot of controversy over whether that would help or not. Right. I think, I think it comes down to responsibility. Washington. Right. You know, and I, I think that people need to be responsible for what they're putting out there. And those companies are responsible, whether they like right. it or not. They should so be you, responsible. You moved into the bigger picture, which is the companies, you know, and some of the people. You mm -hmm. know, I was referring to, you know, just the medium and, you know, uh, what effect it had. And, I, you and know, from my I, point of view, Sam, I, that's I what agree, they want I you to do. <laughs> right. Right. Honestly, right. you know, that's that's how they want you to see it. They want to see they want to, us to see the good of what they're doing. Right. I think and, there's a lot of I think 46 out of 50 states AGs um, have um, suits against some of the major social media companies. So a lot of this is going to, you know, unravel before our eyes. Um, all right, Josh, we only have a few minutes left. Let's get to that last wine. Sure. The last wine is a Heights Cellar Chardonnay, a winemaker, I would say legendary, you know, California winemaker, not famous for their, or not, not identified as much for their Chardonnays. Nor so, is, nor, I mean, the reason I wanted you to taste this was because I usually do not get very excited about Napa Valley Chardonnay. For me, it's a style of wine rather than a wine, rather than a natural wine from a place. And this wine, when I tasted it, I was thinking, wow, what the hell is that? And I found out what it was and um, it was really striking to me. It's a, you know, it's one of the first wines by a new winemaker at, um, at Heights by a new administration run by Carlton McCoy at Heights. He's a master right. sommelier. Yep. Um, and he, he was brought in by Galen Lawrence Jr. who bought Heights um, and, they, and, to, and Carlton's running it. And so this is a sommelier's concept of what Napa Valley Chardonnay should be. And I love it. 
You know, I mean, it's not, I don't think this is at the level of the other two wines that I'm, that I'm, you know, sharing with you. But for me, this is the direction Napa Valley Chardonnay should go. And it's like a first step. And I think it's delicious. It's fresh. It's lively. It's mineral. It's, so I, um, I just wanted, before you said that, I wanted to tell you that. I wanted to say that, you know, Napa Shards are known to be overblown, buttery, you know, popcorny, very mm -hmm. rich on the mouth. And I tasted this and there was, you know, noticeable acidity. It's actually a few bubbles on my glass. Um, there was a freshness to it. Um, the, um, the palate had, you know, some nice tropical fruit on it, mm -hmm. um, you know, some freshness. And it is somewhat of a departure, you know, from that perceived classic um, so you only Napa find Chardon. it somewhat of a departure? Um, no, I think it's a departure. Okay, I, think I, it, find, I, I think find it a departure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I, not, I, if you poured I, this for me, I would not have said, oh, that's an Napa Valley Chardonnay. I agree, I agree. Um, you know, sometimes I get ahead of myself. It's definitely, it's definitely not typical in that sense. The acidity is definitely more prominent. The freshness is there. You know, it's not that big overwhelming mouthfeel yeah. and um, there are people making wine white wines in 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 napa valley that are in this direction like you know matthiasen and working right. with um and the wines that vera was making with ribola jala um matthiasen's working with ribola jala yeah. and and um and I, other I think, other people are making really beautiful whites but they tend not to be chardonnay I, right. Um, Dan Petrosky's making all those Italian varieties. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, mm -hmm. Now that I took another sip, I have to retract and totally agree with you. I mean, just the mouthfeel, you would not categorize this as... No, you know, it's oh, not a fat it? wine. Yeah, it's not a fat wine at all. And it's, and it's, it's fresh, it's, as you say. It's really fresh. It's, it's almost fresh. light and airy. Yep. Um, um, so this is the two, this is 2018 Height Cellar Chardonnay. It's the Quartz Creek Vineyard. Um, and it's the Oak Knoll district of Napa Valley. So it's a Napa Valley shard that doesn't, you know, play or drink like a Napa Valley shard. Josh, what's the approximate retail on this? Uh, that's 63 bucks. Okay. So that's really, but that, you know, that rivals, you know, some good Chablis and, you know, yeah. some other good. And it should age, wine. you know, it's, it's from good. It, it it's seems from, like a, well, the, it's I think from the, good uh, vineyards. So, yeah. Um, Josh, we're running late. I told you this was going to go fast. Um, I well, it's great to, to talk a, to you, Sam. I have to do a quick wrap-up, and then I want to get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook, at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we go under S. Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we go at Ben Ruby. But you can always use the hashtag, The Grape Nation, to get to us on both. I will post um, all the wines that Josh and I um, tasted tonight. I will give you specific information if you are interested. Um, and these are very well-selected, delicious wines, Josh. Um, Josh, if we want to get more information on you guys, where do we go um, to get more info on Wine and Spirits magazine? 
On the web, it's wineandspiritsmagazine.com. It's all spelled okay. out. Wine is singular and is spelled out. Spirits, plural, magazine, all spelled out, dot com. Okay. And we have, a, we have a full website there. You can su- subscribe digitally. You can just subscribe for digital and um, print, or you can just subscribe for a month at a time and get access to hundreds of thousands of wine reviews on, that, on the site. So, and current issue online and on the stands is December? Exactly, which is, our main, the, which is our main focus on Cabernet and Champagne. Right. So 2017 cabs you yep. were talking about? Yep. There's a long article on, on that, and there's a lot of um, cabs from very, various different vintages in the, a huge, I think it's like 23 or 24 pages of, of tasting notes on Cabernet. Um, who doesn't love champagne, and especially this time of the year. So that sounds oh, yeah. like a good issue. Uh, all right. I want to thank our guest, Josh Green. Josh... Like I said early on, it's great to have you on every year. I think we could probably sit here and talk for hours, but we got to pick our spots. So I thank you for helping me focus on those. Thank um, you so much, Sam. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda. Um, and thank you uh, to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Um, hopefully we'll be here next year to talk to Josh um, about 2021, the year in wine. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Great Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.